What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to the JP Money Podcast. We have a returning guest host today. Mr. Dan Bohannon has joined us. He is a teacher here in Michigan. Him and his wife have worked very hard to start building their financial foundation the last five or six years. And uh, he's a guy that I learned a lot from. So I figured if I can learn from him, you can too. Uh, so we're going to be talking to him today about uh, investing and what types of accounts and investments he and his wife like to focus on. And uh, we're going to learn something from him today. So let's get into it. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we got my friend Dan back with me today, and we're going to be talking about different investing buckets and just why it's so important to set a solid financial framework in place as early on as possible, uh, You know, preferably right when you start your first job or even earlier if you're able. Hopefully, this is a piece of encouragement for people that maybe haven't started investing that are getting uh, well into their working years better late than never. Definitely now is the time to jump in and get started with investing. and. Dan has a really interesting, uh, and I'm really envious that he has this skill and characteristic, but he's able to talk to other people about money a lot better than I can. And so one of the nice things about this podcast is if I'm recording an episode by myself, it's really just talking to myself. So I don't have to worry too much about hurting somebody's feelings or putting too much pressure on them to start investing. It's really up to you. It's your world, but it's definitely something we all in the personal finance community recommend getting started as soon as possible. And Dan, I, I remember a couple of years ago, his sister-in-law, uh, which, you know, it's always kind of weird talking about personal things like money uh, with in-laws, especially, I feel like. And he was really encouraging his his newly graduated sister-in-law, who was a super superstar soccer player, well, really two of them, one in, in Iowa, one in Bowling Green. Uh, and he's really pushing them both to open up a Roth IRA and get some money in there. And I think that's so cool. Cool that he had the confidence to do it. Dan, am I right? Did you talk to your two sister-in-laws about getting this started? And and they're both very smart ladies on their own. They would figure out what they need to figure out on their own. But I definitely think you put a little bit of friendly pressure on them to get that going. Yeah, we, um, my, my sister-in-laws uh, and my father-in-law and my wife, Lindsay, we have a, a group, it's called the Investment Club. And so this was a discussion that we had as a, as a club. And, you know, I, I highly suggested that they get started with a Roth IRA um, as soon as possible, because we know time in the market is very valuable. Um, so that's, uh, that's something that um, I pushed very hard. Lindsay helped me as well. And we, we both were suggesting that. And what's funny is going back to uh, right before Lindsay and I got married, I had started my Roth IRA and I was encouraging her to start a Roth IRA. And we weren't married yet. So I wasn't going to be like, no, you're doing this. Um, it was sort of just like, hey, you really should get this started. And uh, then she was like, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, whatever. And then um, she went on a trip with her father to visit his friend that lives in uh, Chicago. Um, and he's uh, um, into finance. Um, and he started talking to uh, Lindsay about 
uh, a Roth IRA. So she came back from their little vacation and said, you know what, Dan, you're right. I should get this started. I, sh I should have listened to you. And anyway, it's, it's, uh, uh, something that she's on board with, which helped my sister-in-laws also, you know, start Roth IRAs. So that's kind of the the root of the the story. And yeah, there's great power in multitude of counsel, right? It's it's one thing to hear it from one person, but when you start hearing it from three or four people, you realize, yeah, I probably should get going on this. Right. So, did you get any pushback from the either your now wife or your sister-in-laws that having this conversation? Did they say, you know, no? Um, it, I mean, they didn't like, I, they didn't open up their computer right away and log on to Vanguard.com and get it open. It did take some time. Um, and maybe because that was, you know, the distance between us where they were living and where we were living and, or maybe they just wanted to think about it or I'm not sure, but you know, eventually they, they got us started, which was the most important thing. So Rachel had been, um, working. This is your sister-in-law, correct? Yes. Um, she had been working for a little while before she opened hers, I believe, if I remember correctly. Um, Natalie opened hers uh, before she graduated college. So it was maybe like a month or two before, but... Um, she missed out on the uh, NIL genera generation, <laughs> she, correct? She did. She wasn't getting paid under the table for... Uh... I think that she probably would have brought in millions she um, was a star athlete yeah. from what I remember. But so it's too uh, bad. A Big Ten school. But um That's know. all right. Yeah, it's yeah, okay. She made up for it. She's yeah. got a great job now. So yeah, for sure. So why do you think people and I'm I'm talking about myself more than anyone, why do you think people don't open up a Roth IRA or a four oh one K or whatever it is right away when they graduate? Because you and I feel like almost carte blanche, blanket, whole country, anyone who's got a full-time job, you should be doing this. Why do you think people don't do it? Because they're not educated on what it is. People don't know what a Roth IRA is and what it means and like literally everything about it. And maybe they're not looking into their future. They're, they're living day to day or week to week, or if it's paycheck to paycheck or whatever the case may be, they, or they have different ideas in mind, like, I'm going out with my friends and that's, you know, the investment I'm making in relationships, right? Mm -hmm. um, they, they just don't know the importance behind it. Right. And I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. Cannonball! Yeah, I think confidence and um, knowledge are two of the biggest barriers. And I talked about that in my Investing 101 episode. And part of me thinks that the financial industrial complex, if you will, is set up that way. So the layman, the the common man can't understand it really. And there's been a lot of books that have been written and articles and um, online accounts that have been created in the last 10, 15 years to make this knowledge a little bit more accessible, I think, which is also kind of scary on one end because just about anybody can claim to be an expert on a topic and Put information out there for anyone to hear. That's why I always end these podcasts with this is not financial advice. And this is uh, something where you should consider a personal you know, accountant or advisor to look at your personal situation. 
uh, because it is an intimidating topic. It was for me when I first started. It wasn't until I started doing it for a few years where I started to realize, you know, I'm comfortable putting, you know, whatever it is, $1,000 into some investment because I know exactly what the investment is. And we've been a little spoiled here as investors the last 10 years with a fantastic bull market. Anyone who started investing prior to 2008 has probably felt the effects, the opposite effects of a bear market and what it feels like to lose a job, see your house value go down, and see your investments tank all in the same year. Um, and nobody, I think one fear, and correct me if I'm wrong, would be, and I must get worried sometimes while I don't tell people like, hey, you have to invest in a Roth IRA right now. It's because it's quite possible in the next couple of years, it will tank. And I would say that in any economic environment, not just the one right. we're in right now, but I think it would be intimidating for someone that's brand new to say, you're telling me what to max out my Roth IRA with $6,000 and then there's a downturn in the market. Do you have any fear when you're telling other people or suggesting or gently pushing them to these in instruments that it's going to tank? The way that I like to kind of phrase it is this is money that you are investing in yourself that you're not using for like 30, 35 years. So it doesn't really matter. And I do mention like, even if someone decides, hey, I'm going to open one up, I'm going to put 20 bucks in a month or whatever it is, um, that their value could decrease. And, you know, in a 10 year span, five, 10 year span, you might not see many gains, right? But over a, a long term, 30, 40 years, like you're going to see a lot of growth. And I always say, you know, 6%, that's that's probably low to some people, but I think it's conservative and a number that um, I'm comfortable with using uh, for myself and looking at future projections and whatever. Um, but they they might see that. I try and lay it out to them and say, hey, you might lose money, lose money, right? Air quotes, but it'll it'll come back and you know, just look at the last, what, 100 years, right? Mm -hmm. You know, that's the the data that we have, so. Right, and I, I don't have a ton of data in front of me at the moment to kind of break down these numbers for the audience, but what Dan is basically saying, the longer your time horizon, the more comfortable we can all be saying that your money is going to grow somewhere in the tune of 6%, maybe a little less, maybe a little more, whatever it is, but it's going to grow. It's going to outpace inflation and it's going to set your future self up for success. I mentioned that in one of my previous episodes when I talked about uh, investing 101, I think I made the, the phrase that you your money that you're investing is you're hiring little soldiers to then work for you and then work together to create compound interest. And then over the 30 or 40 year time horizon, most of the money you own is in growth and not in you know, not in the principal balance, you're in your deposits that you made yourself. So it's just interesting. And I think that getting started is like most things in life, we are a creature uh, or we are products of our habits that we've created. And so just the initial step of getting started, electronically signing up for a automatic investment to put whatever it is. And like you said, something is better than nothing. I don't care if it's $10 a month. That you're going to start to see some impact where your money makes yourself money and you realize, oh, this is a really good thing to be doing. You might not see it in one, two, three, four, five years, but after that, you'll start to see that this money's earning for me. It looked like you want to comment on that. So I, I was going to ask you, do you remember logging on to Vanguard.com for the first time and like what, how you felt? 
Yeah, scared, uh, scared per- personally. Yeah, because well, I I had originally invested not in Vanguard, and you know this. We've talked about this. You were one person who really spoke to me about the importance of low cost, broad based, diverse uh, indexes. That having money in different accounts, moving it into Vanguard, and then I was a little bit nervous though because. I could see the number on the screen. Whereas before, when I had a financial advisor, it was like, I didn't know what he was doing behind the curtain. And I was happy with that because I didn't, you know, I would get a statement like annually. So like, oh yeah, it's worth 3,000 now. Okay, it's worth 6,000 now. Like that makes sense. And when I put it in Vanguard, it was like, well, I'm in, I'm in charge now. Yeah. So I was a little bit nervous, what, but what, what do about, you ask? What about that that feeling when logging on? Were you comfortable with the website? Did you know where to go? Did you know what to do? You know what I'm saying? No, I mean, you were there to help me the first time and get me into it. And after doing it a few times, I was super comfortable. But I, I just think that's where a lot of people think like, oh, doing it on my own, like I need to know how the website works and I need to know what to click on and I need to know what fund I need to put this in. And it can be really overwhelming when you first start, right? Mm-hmm. But after a while, you log in, you check out, like if you're going to buy something, by investments or, you know, you know what to click on and how it all works and you have a fund picked out already. So you don't have to make that decision again. And I don't know, I think, uh, at first it's scary, right? You're a little overwhelmed with the website. Where do I go? But it's cool. After a while you get used to logging on and knowing what, where to put the money and et cetera. So is this something when you're like recommending it to a sister-in-law, for instance, the first couple of times you're looking over their shoulder, if they have questions, obviously it's their money, it's their business, but you're obviously helping them with this process. I offered a like, hey, I'm I'm very um, aware of how to work the Vanguard website or Fidelity or Voya Financial, right? Because that's where our money is located. I, I know how to navigate those uh, websites. And I, I honestly think that's where a lot of the, the fear behind doing this on your own comes into play. So have you ever hired a financial advisor and how do you feel about financial advisors and people using them? Because there's a lot of people that don't have a mentor like you or me or whoever it is to tell them to get started. They know in theory that they should start investing, but they don't know how. And so they go to a financial advisor. What should people be aware about when they do that? Uh, The fees associated with advisors, Um, just to be aware of the fees. And I, I think it's important that if that's the route they want to go, that's great. Like you're investing and that's what, you know, you need to do. And if that's what you're comfortable with, that's great. But how I feel about financial advisors is um, I feel very strongly that they are um, not uh, presenting all the info to their clients that they should be. Like some people don't know that they're paying a 5% front load fee. Mm-hmm. when they're making an, an investment. So they're But but Dan, I'm a fiduciary. I I have the the client's best interest in mind. Are you telling me I'm selling you a product? It's I, I mean just think like you're not investing if you max out your Roth IRA, it's not $6,000. It's, you know, less than that. It's actually more than that. Right. Mm -hmm. I think you've talked about this at some point, Mm -hmm. but, um, you know, you're not putting $6,000 in, you're putting $5,600 in because you're paying somebody to make these decisions for you. 
it, it gets me fired up and frustrated because maybe they do go over this and, and, you know, I, I've never had a financial advisor before, so I, I guess I can't speak to, to how the process works, but, um, I think that it's important for those people that use advisors just to understand what they're sort of getting into. Yeah. And the, you know, neither of us are against financial advisors. Like the majority of people in the world should have financial advisors to protect their wealth because they have no clue what's going on. But that's where the issue is. People have no clue what's going on and it's your responsibility to know what's going on. So there's financial advisors called fee-only financial advisors where you're having, having them take a second look at your financial, what you got going on behind the curtain and they can give you advice. You pay them a one-time fee and that's the end of it something like that to have a check-in to make sure your asset allocations in the right place or especially when you're getting near retirement and you've got social security to think about and you don't know how to calculate that or you've got a pension and you don't know how to calculate that there's time and a place to use a financial advisor for sure and i i think that's really important to do especially when you're nearing that age of of retirement um to to talk to somebody and right now with my job Lindsay's job we're able to um, there's like free advisors through our employer that they are able to sit down with us and give us advice and we don't have to pay anything. But even if we did, I think I would, right? Because just to see an outside, an outsider's perspective on like, you know, maybe we could be allocated differently or something like that. And you and I are both in teaching, so I can't speak a ton for other occupations. I know your wife has a private uh, job in the private car industry, but we kind of have it bad as teachers. Teachers, as far as investing goes, number one, we don't make a ton of money compared to the private private world. Uh, but there's a lot of financial advising companies that have contracts with schools and schools are only able to offer their products for a 403B or 457. And so we're kind of stuck with these five or six different um, places to invest our money uh, and not all of them are good options. Sometimes none of them are really good options. So that's where it's really important to look behind the curtain, make sure you know what's going on. And, you know, I know you mentioned fees is obviously a huge thing. And fees to me are not the worst at, on the front end. Like I said, doing something is better than nothing. But where fees to me really hit you hard, like especially expense ratios. Right. If you've got a 1% expense ratio and you know, you're know maybe not paying a ton of money on that on your initial investment in your first couple of years, but now you're fast forward 30 years and you're 60 and you're retiring and you've got $2.5 million in the account and it's got a 1% fee on that. Now, I don't I mean, I don't, can't do that math off the top of my head, but you've got thousands and thousands of dollars that are eating away your return. And so I, I personally believe it's, you know, you should try and avoid those high expense ratio funds. And sometimes that's with a advisor where if you go with like a Vanguard or Fidelity, you can pick a fund that's Fidelity has like no expense ratio funds. Mm -hmm. So they also have some other ones that are low cost. That's always what, when I make a recommendation, I always say, you know, these are funds that you can look at, but again, it's like their decision. They can, they can decide on, on where to, to put that. It's, we, it's weird because I, I usually feel like you 
pay for what you get. And so initially when I hear like there's 0% expense ratios by this product, my instinct is that's a bad investment. Like if you're going to offer it to me for free, it must suck. It must not be very good. <laughs> but in investing, it doesn't work that way because fees are one of the big things that eat away against a return. So uh, this is one of the true places where I would agree with you and say you're paying less and you're oftentimes getting a better product. If you're index investing in low cost funds, you're basically competing against a financial advisor or a group of advisors trying to pick and beat stocks or a mutual fund advisor trying to pick individual stocks that's going to beat what the overall index is measuring. And many studies have shown that over time, I think I even read an article once that like Warren Buffett made a bet with one of his friends or something like that, like over a 10 year period. And for him, you know, a $5 bet to me would be like a $10 million bet to him <laughs> right. or probably even more. But, you know, he made a bet that this group of highly educated advisors would not beat what the index would do when you accounted for fees in addition to the, uh, the, the return. Right. Some, some beat the, the index. But year after year, it gets harder and harder to do that. And some of them, maybe they do. And I don't know um, if they're just getting lucky or what, but, you know, that's good for them. That's great. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's and not a competition. If, and, like... and if you're you're in with that person, they beat it, then that's great. But, you know, for me, like the, I feel like I'm just an average Joe. I, I'm good <laughs> with just the S&P 500 index, right? You're, you're a humble man. But hopefully I am too in the sense of investing, right? Like I like I almost exclusively in index invest because right. I know that I'm not going to beat what the index does right. most of the time. And so I just, you know, I want to talk to you about two things. I want to talk to you about investing, investments, and I want to talk about the buckets in which you invest in. Because uh, right. that's where you said you log into the website for the first time and you get confused. There's these ticker symbols. There's a Roth IRA. There's a brokerage. There's all these different things. Right. And I want to kind of get rid of the mystery behind that for some people because it's a very simple process and it should be a simple process. If, you're comp if you have a complicated investment strategy, there's something unusual going on. Maybe you're an extremely wealthy person and you have money to spare and so you want to mess around with stock picking or uh, crypto investing or doing all these fancy bonds or whatever, like, great. But for me and the, the majority of my clientele here at the JP Money mm -hmm. Show is uh, regular Joes like you and me. Yes. So uh, let's, uh, let's talk about investments and buckets. Life is thoughtless when you're thoughtless. Those who don't try never look foolish dancing through life. So Dan, you mentioned that it gets very confusing for people when they log into these accounts and try to DIY their investments, do it their, themselves, but it's very simple. So before we talk about tax buckets, what do you usually recommend to someone that's like just getting started and they log into Vanguard or Fidelity or whoever it is? What do you recommend they invest in? Um, for a new investor, I would just recommend VTSAX, which means they're purchasing a little bit of like every public publicly traded company in the United States. So um, it's very, you know, di diversified, right? Yeah. Every different sector basically that's yeah. covered here is, is in that fund, right. even if it's just a really small piece. Right. Um, so that that's a good place just to get started. Right. 
once uh, you get more money, earn more money, decide to invest money, you can choose other large, mid, small cap um, funds. And uh, it even goes even deeper than that, right? Um, you've got uh, growth funds, value funds, or blend um, that you can you can choose. Yeah. And we kind of talked about that a little bit in the investing 101 episode. If you're looking for like the more basic stuff, go check that out for sure. Make sure you know what some of these words mean. And I want to just remind you here at the JP Money Show, we don't give financial advice. Uh, this is just two guys, entertainment and education, talking to each other about what we do and what has worked well for us. Because we're very similarly minded in this, especially for a beginning investor, as you said, and especially for one that has a little bit of a time horizon ahead of them. If you're looking at someone with virtually no assets and they're in their 60s, maybe might not jump right into VTSAX or some other a little bit more aggressive, you know, entirely stock, you know, funded. And maybe I would, but it's just for people with different time horizons, you might adjust your investing a little bit. If you're just starting a good framework is exactly what Dan said. And there's a few other options, which I'm sure he'll get to, but uh, VTSAX is uh, one that covers, like he said, every publicly traded company here in America. So yeah, so that has a very low expense ratio, right? Yeah, 0.04%. Okay, at least the Vanguard one does. Yes, yep. Yes. And yeah, okay. So what else do you, is it just, are there other things that you suggest people invest in? Yeah. Um, I mean, the, again, I'm speaking from what I have, right? Um, and what I've invested in, um, there's a total, I should say 500 index, mm -hmm. which is a large, uh, cap fund, um, V F I A X. And so that has the 500 largest mm -hmm. companies, mm -hmm. um, in the United States. That's what you would be investing in. If you chose that fund, there's also, um, which is what you covered. I believe you said, and correct me if I'm wrong, mid cap would be 2 billion to 10 billion. That remember? sounds correct. That sounds correct. So, uh, you know, there's a mid cap fund again, there's growth or value or there's, there's different aspects there. Um, and even if you click around on the, the Vanguard website, um, it'll, it'll show you like how aggressive it is and maybe, you know, it's got like a nine box where it shows, mm -hmm. Hey, it's more growth or value, or maybe it's a blend of, of both. And I like that S&P 500 fund personally. I read a book once called The Simple Path to Wealth written by a, a financial advisor, if you will, named J.L. Collins. And he talked about the self-cleansing mechanism of the S&P 500. Every year companies are introduced and every year companies are kicked out of the S&P 500 uh, depending on the size of the company and how well they've been performing. So uh, there certainly will be plenty of down years uh, and there will be plenty of up years over time. Um, that's earned in the, in the tune of 10%, depending on different times that, you know, very long time horizon. That's been the case. We certainly don't like using that number. Like we said, we both usually think about like 6% given a long time horizon of expected growth out of a fund like that. But that's can, that can be a very powerful one to, that people can get started with. Um, do you do any target date fund investing? I'm kind of a fan of that. Do you? Are you just strictly straight um, aggressive and you just stay out of that? Or um, in my 457 account uh, through Boya State of Michigan, um, I have the target date 2055 fund. Okay. Um, which that I believe is broken up into 
like 90% stocks, 10% bonds, and it's got basically the total stock market. It's got an international piece. And then for the bond aspect, it's got uh, US and then international bonds. So that's kind of how it's, if you can uh, picture a pie chart, uh, that's kind of how it's broken up into four sections. And that's 90-10 asset allocation because of your age. You're in your early 30s. Correct. If you look at that same exact fund, you haven't touched it, but 20 years from now, it might be more like 70-30. Uh, gets a little bit more uh, bond heavy the older that you get. Right. Correct. Yeah, it kind of changes on its own. You don't have to go in and, and change it. So I think that's um, one important aspect for someone who maybe wants to invest on their own, but they don't want to always be logging in and maybe rebalancing themselves, they can pick a target date fund and it'll do it for them. Yeah. And it takes the decision making out of it, which is what I really like. Like, I didn't really care what happened with my investments the first couple of years that I got started. But now that I've got a little bit of money in them and I'm looking at them and you start seeing these market swings of 5, 10, 20%, it's like, I kind of feel like I'm timing the market a little bit. Like, do I buy now? Do I move funds into the tra the target date fund? Uh, that's the one emotionally and mentally peaceful thing about a target date fund. It does all that work for you. And the expense ratio is slightly more, but still very, very cheap. Okay. So do you only invest in stocks, like in indexes that track the stock market uh, and target date funds, which have a little bit of bond exposure? Yes, for the most part. Um, I don't own any like individual stocks. Uh, in my wife's Roth IRA, we have some of her allocation in uh, REITs, um, which I don't know if you've touched on that before. But, I don't believe so. Uh, real estate investment trusts. It's just another sector that you can uh, invest in. And I was just trying to, uh, you know, um, give yourself more diversification in your asset allocation. Yes. Yeah, yes. which is really important because at any one point in time, the stock market could crash and it's nice to have REITs or bonds or real estate or whatever it is right. uh, as part of your picture. We also have uh, international funds, mainly stocks. I have that in uh, really all my accounts and Lindsay has that as well in, in hers. You know, I think it's important that you have some of that uh, part of your your whole pie chart. So your, the pie chart is essentially, you're saying diversification in sure. investing. Yes. So tell me again, just repeat for me, what are the major pieces of maybe your own personal investment strategy or what you would recommend to someone who's just getting started? What are all those terms people should maybe have some exposure to? pretty simple. Don't get, I'm not trying to complicate things. Right. If you're investing well, you're probably investing in a very boring and simple way. I think that uh, maybe a total uh, market fund or an S&P 500 fund. Um, and then like that's part of your allocation plus international. Um, and then depending on how aggressive you want to be, then you have like a bond allocation mm -hmm. as well. You know, if you want to be super aggressive, then you have um, a lot more stocks and bonds. So you could do like total stock market, international. You could even invest in like small cap growth. I know um, a lot of my Roth IRA is in small cap growth funds. They've been um, not really performing well the, over the last year and a half. But to me, that's great because I'm buying those 
you know, a price that's, that's lower, it's like it's on sale. Right. So, um, as soon as whenever that starts to kick off and start, you know, giving me some returns and that's great, I'm in a good position, but, um, you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, those companies that are what worth less than 2 billion, billion. right? I, I believe so. Yeah. Which is still a lot of money. <laughs> that's a lot of money. Yeah, it's, it's just a couple of bill. No big deal. But uh, so, you know, over over the time, um, time frame of, you know, 30, 40, 50 years, small cap funds um, tend to return a higher percent than large cap. But it all just depends on the time frame. So I'm banking on the, maybe those small cap funds still outperforming like a growth fund outperforming maybe other other areas but i'm still invested in those other areas right Mm -hmm. Um, i just might have a little bit more percentage of my portfolio invested in in small cap than i would say maybe other people yeah when i think about those sort of confusing terms like large cap funds or value funds those are really large companies that are really stable because of how large they are. They can withstand any economic environment just about because they're so big and because they've been around a long time. Whereas your small cap funds, I think of those as like aggressive or volatile funds. I mean, they're all volatile, but especially small caps because many of them don't make it, but some of them become superstars. And so you're going to see some crazy ups and downs. I think it makes a great hedge with like an S&P 500 fund. Because as we talked about in the Investing 101 episode, those are market cap weighted. So even though there's 500 funds, the top 10 or 20 funds carry the bulk of the whole return for all 500 companies. And so those are really big companies, you know, the Facebook and Apple and whatnot. And then your small caps oftentimes aren't really factored into that S&P 500 fund at all. So it kind of diversifies a little bit, even though they're both index funds and they're both stocks, that gives you some diversification within the stock environment. And then you mentioned REITs, you mentioned bonds, and then we've got even your personal house is an asset. I don't really think of it as an investment. It's worked out as an investment for you, for your previous house that you bought. I mean, it did. It turned around a nice return. Um, But I I also don't look at that as like, I know it's an, it's an asset, but, and it can be included in like a net worth conversation, but I don't know. It's a place to live at the same time. Yeah. Right. Cool. Yeah, we're on the same page here for diversification. So um, for, let me ask you, I'll try to take it one question at a time. Why would you tell a young person to invest in a Roth IRA instead of a traditional IRA? Because that's something that's not from their employer. It's something they can do on their own. The current max in 2022 is $6,000. So it's not a ton of money that you can squeeze in there. Why do you say Roth and why not a traditional I would say Roth because um, you're investing after after tax dollars, right? The growth on those dollars, you don't have to pay tax in the future on them um, as of right now. So uh, that's you know a big advantage in the future. You can control your um, your tax bracket, your taxes in the future um, if you have a, a Roth IRA and you're withdrawing funds in retirement from that. Okay. So that's just money you have to already have in your bank account that you've already paid taxes on that you stick into a Roth. Correct. And now we don't recommend this or advise people to do this, but one of the rules around a Roth, correct me if I'm wrong, is if you've made a contribution to it, you can take out your contribution, your contribution, not any growth on your contribution anytime 
tax and penalty free. Correct. 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 So that's something to just, you know, I don't like to even think of a Roth IRA as a emergency fund because you just want that money to grow and, you know, and it makes a great tool to leave behind to heirs if you have, you know, kids or grandkids when you're, when you're older. Ohana means family. Family means nobody Nobody gets left behind or forgotten. But um, that's something that a Roth IRA does too. Just know that you can't um, make up that contribution in the future. So like, let's just say for 2022, I've already maxed out my Roth. I put $6,000 in and then like tomorrow I take $6,000 out. I can't in two months put $6,000 back in because I've already made like maxed out that contribution limit. And there are contribution limits. Um, We're not going to go over those a ton, but you're married filing jointly, I assume. I think it's somewhere around $215,000-ish. Yeah, there's like a phase out um, limit. Uh, So it's something like 204 to 214 or 215. or Mm -hmm. It might be a little bit higher than that, but it's around that range. So if you uh, married filing jointly, make over, let's just say it's 215, then um, you aren't able to contribute to a Roth IRA. There's other avenues you could go, but that Mm -hmm. we save that for a later day. Sure. But speaking of other avenues, I do want to talk just briefly about the mega backdoor Roth IRA, because uh, this is something you've been able to take advantage of. And you and I are both big fans of not allowing the government to be in control of our finances if and when possible, right? Some things you can't help it, you know, your pension or your social security or whatever it is, you're kind of up to the government's whims there. But a Roth IRA, and like you said, it could happen that they end up taxing some portion of gains eventually. I don't see it happening, but it could. You were able to stick like a bunch of money into (laughs) a, normally they capped it at $6,000 for a reason. They don't want people to get a ton of money into a Roth IRA. Your wife had like a secret method at work (laughs) to do this legally, right? I was told by a colleague that only like 47% of companies offer this uh, after tax bucket use it but right. go ahead um so what my wife Lindsay was able to do was um contribute to her 401k um and the contribution limit uh for this year is you know like twenty thousand five hundred dollars right she was able to max that out her employer uh also gave her a match they gave her four percent and then matched uh four percent so it's an extra 8%, right? So that was extra dollars on top of what Lindsay put in to her 401k. Um, and then there's uh, the, the mega backdoor um, is where you contribute after-tax dollars to an after-tax account. Mm-hmm. And then what she would do is from that after-tax account, roll the money into her Roth IRA. And so the maximum contribution, and I don't know what it is for 2022, I want to say it's like 61,000 or something, Mm -hmm. but people are able to uh, contribute uh, $20,500 plus your um, employer match. So take that, those two numbers minus 61,000, and you're able to um, contribute the rest and essentially get it into your Roth IRA. Yeah, didn't you have to like call up the company once every year and tell them to move it into the Roth IRA? So something she, like that. She had to call. Well, she could call once per year, 
um, she called once per month, but there's also another little stipulation there where um, if that money in the after-tax bucket had gains, Gross, yeah. then you had to pay taxes on the growth. But it, it wasn't ever like a whole lot of money that she, she, we had to pay yeah. tax on. She just but, wanted to get it over there ASAP. Right. So we were able to save a significant amount of money and shelter utilize, it from taxes. Yeah. You utilize that and, and you're right, shelter it from taxes. So in the future, hopefully we won't have to pay tax on that growth from uh, the couple of years that we took advantage of that. And there is a short term cost to that, the taxes you are paying on it up front. So it's not like it's just a totally free thing to do, but especially at your age, if you start withdrawing from it 30 years from now, all that growth now is tax free. Right. So Roth areas are great for uh, people who are eligible that, that aren't phased out by the amount of money, but also that are younger, that can take advantage of tax free growth, which is different from an IRA, a normal individual account. Some people call it an individual retirement arrangement where you get a $6,000 deduction basically for putting that money in pre-tax. So it's going to reduce your taxable liability in the short term, but then you're always responsible for paying taxes on the growth. So you got to look at your own situation, but you and I are both huge fans of the Roth IRA. For sure. So what other buckets can people invest in? And that's what you would do with your Vanguard account or your Fidelity account. For most people's 401k, you're pretty much stuck with what your employer offers, correct? Correct. So um, my wife works for GM and they offer, they have their 401k set up through Fidelity. So that's another option. Uh, she has, like I mentioned, the, uh, the employer match. Um, so she puts in 4% and they basically um, match 4%. They also give 4%. So she puts in 4%, they give her 8%. For myself, for, through the state of Michigan, I believe I have to contribute 4% and they give me 3%. So so our match as teachers isn't near as nice <laughs> as uh, your wife has with a private company. Probably right. in addition to, I would imagine, there's some form of a bonus at the end of the year if you do a good job. Most A lot of people working in the private industry have access to right. end of the year bonuses or company profit sharing that it's just like, all this money is coming out of nowhere. What's going on here? Teachers yeah. don't get uh, profit sharing. Right. I get a high five. So <laughs> better than nothing, I guess. So yeah, 401k is an option. Um, you should always try and contribute if there is a match that you you contribute up to that and if you want to do more that's great you know you got the, the roth ira the 401k um there's also the roth 401k which is uh, money that's going into your 401k but it's it's taxed first and then going in so when you withdraw it in retirement you've already paid taxes on that um and that that's also twenty thousand five hundred. so someone could essentially have a Roth IRA and contribute 6,000 and then do a um, Roth 401k and contribute 20,500. Mm -hmm. um, but you want to sort of be diverse. That's another, you know, area Form that you want to be diversification, yeah, yeah. diversified is, you know, making sure that you have a good amount of maybe each um, type, you know, pre-tax and post-tax money. Yeah. So taxes are obviously a huge consideration to some extent, extent, accessing the funds is a little bit of a, not diversification, but something to consider, right? We mentioned Roth IRAs, you can get to them in the event of an emergency and you need to get to your contributions, you can. You and I as teachers have a very unique account called a 457B account. Ours is through the state of Michigan. And what's unique about that one? Uh, once we leave our employer, 
we're able to withdraw money from that account without taking a 10% penalty. Now that's uh, pre-tax money. So we have to pay taxes on what we take out, but um, we're not hit with a 10% penalty like someone with a 401k would be, or even a 403b, which is another option for like teachers or people in the public sector. Yeah. I'm just thinking about you and your wife's situation. It's crazy. You could invest as a teacher in your 457, in your 403b, 20,500, I believe in, in 2022, you could access both of those. And then your wife's uh, 401k or Roth 401k, whichever she chooses. And then an IRA, a Roth IRA. Yeah. And then if you chose an HSA, a health savings account, right. you could invest in that too. I mean, you could, you could tuck away over a hundred grand just yeah. about just in, you know, tax advantaged accounts, whether it's pre-tax or post-tax. Yes. I went to a, um, a meeting to learn about the 457 that our school system put on. And I asked the question, am I able to max out my 457 and my 403B? And the, the guy giving the presentation like looked at me like, yeah, you, you can do that. <laughs> like he, he looked at me like, why are you asking that question? Like you're not able to do that. Um, and that's kind of how I took it. But uh, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, it's pretty unique. If you can do it, that's great. Yeah, right. <laughs> but if, AKA if, if you have a significant side income that earns a lot of money or if your spouse makes a lot of money, I yeah. mean, those are two avenues to be able to take that excess money right. where your paycheck that you get from school can be like a hundred bucks every two weeks because all that money is going into your 403B or your 457. Right. And if you've got other income sources, then yeah, that's a very uh, feasible solution. Yep. So cool. Um, any information that people need to know about uh, investing, whether it's investments or investment accounts that we didn't cover today that you want to uh, share? There's also just one last thing, like a, just a brokerage account. Oh, yes, um, absolutely. Thank you. It's a taxable brokerage account where you can choose these funds that we've talked about already, but um, it's used with after-tax dollars. Uh, you can pick a fund to, to invest in. When you withdraw the money, um, it depends on if that uh, money's been in there for a year um, because there's short-term capital gains. If it's in there for a year, then you'd pay the long-term capital gains tax on uh, the money that has increased mm -hmm. um, the gains. The gains, thank mm -hmm. you. Um, so there's also that option uh, that someone could potentially open up and take advantage of. Yeah, and and one of the best pieces of investing in a brokerage account is you don't you can access it any time. Obviously, you want right. to keep it in there at least a year to get those long term capital gains as opposed to the short term capital gains. You really shouldn't be investing in anything if you plan on using the funds within a year. Um, that's a, too much volatility going on there. But brokerage accounts, I mean, my wife and I don't have a ton of excess funds. So pretty much all of our investing is going into regular retirement accounts. But for early retirees or if you're saving up for a big expense, like maybe a kid's college, which obviously there's other pieces to that. There's sure. education savings accounts and whatnot, but a brokerage account is something that you can access and you will pay taxes on the capital gains, but those are pretty favorable if you've controlled other aspects of your budget and you're keeping money in retirement accounts in the right spots where a lot of people don't have to pay any capital gains tax, long-term capital gains taxes in their brokerage accounts because they've, they, because they've kept their income levels low 
from other pre-tax savings accounts. Would you agree with that? Yes, yes. And I would imagine that's somewhat part of your plan for whether it's early retirement or kids college or paying off the home or whatever it is. Right. Um, still to be determined how we're using that, right? But um, it, it'll definitely be a, a small piece to uh, our plan in the future. Cool. All right, guys, that's uh, that's going to be it for today's episode on the JP Money Podcast. Dan Bohannon, you are a uh, great guest of the show. You are an esteemed colleague, a friend, and a champion for the people. And it's great that you're able to share some of your wisdom with us today. You keep fighting the good fight. Okay, my friend? Thanks for having me on. Hey, Jill. You know the old sugar daddy. They be tricking. They tell them, girl. I see you, girl, Hey, ladies and gentlemen, Jordan here, the host of the JP Money Show. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Please share it with others if you found it useful or helpful. And remember, this is not intended to be financial advice. You should consult a professional financial advisor to help you run the numbers and look at your own personal financial situation. Thank you.